How many marbles are in here? If this is a whole life of a child from zero to 18. You got it. 936 marbles. You didn't even need that sign. Forget that. Okay. There's a baptism at 11. Wilhelmina Geminetti. She's going to have trouble in uh, first grade spelling that name. We've got uh, Wes Parsons here from Dalton, Georgia with a whole group that are up here to do ministry this week in Pitcairn. Wes, why don't you stand up and see how much bigger he is than his father. There he is. And that is two tables over there. So you guys are going to have a great time doing ministry here in our fair city, uh, Pittsburgh. First time for many of you in Pittsburgh, so hopefully the weather's good and your experience is great. Well, we continue our series. This is the penultimate uh, message. Scott preaches next week the last message in this series, Walk This Way, What It Means to Walk with Jesus. We started in Micah chapter 6, 6 to 8. We've been in the book of Acts primarily since then, looking at the life of Paul. And so we're here in chapter 17 when Paul makes his way uh, to Athens. And you'll see in this reading and in the message that Paul didn't have much choice. He didn't really make his way. God took him there. Beginning in verse 16, chapter 17, book of Acts. Now, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue that this, with the Jews and the devoted persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some were the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these new things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. And among them was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. In 1941, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was at Oxford University, was preaching there to a student body. After the preaching, he had a time of questions and answers, and so the first man to his feet was a student of law, captain of a debating society, and he said, Sir, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to you today, but I had difficulty has arisen in my mind. Your sermon is well-constructed and well-delivered as it was could have easily been delivered to a whole group of farmers. And with that, he sat down, and the audience, mostly students, applauded wildly. And when the applause ended, Lloyd-Jones said, I really can't see your difficulty, for I regard you students of Oxford just like farmers. You're common clay, miserable sinners with the same needs as anyone else. And then he quoted Martin Luther. When I preach, I regard neither doctors or magistrates, though I have 40 of them in my congregation. I have my eyes fixed on the servant maids and children. And if the learned are not well pleased with what they hear, well, the door is always open. In other words, get the heck out. Did you know next year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? 500 years ago, next year, October 31st, Martin Luther took a parchment and he nailed it to the door of his church with 95 declarations, 95 theses, or theses. Now think of that. Luther didn't have one complaint with the Roman Catholic Church. He had 95 of them. Do you know his first complaint? All of life is repentance. You know, it's common to hear the word in Greek, metanoia, meaning to change or turn around, change behavior. That's what we usually define repentance as. But listen to what Luther said. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. See, he's not talking about a change of behavior. He's talking about a change, a reorientation of one's life. Remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at a dinner party. Simon the Pharisee has thrown it, and Jesus is there reclined at the table, and he's eating. And a woman comes in, and she begins to kneel at Jesus' feet and cover his feet with her tears. And then he's, she's wiping her tears from his feet. And Luke says, instantly Jesus knows what the Pharisee's thinking. What he's thinking is, if you knew what kind of woman this is, you would get her to leave you immediately. And yet Jesus doesn't directly address that thought. Instead he says, Simon, I've got a story to tell you. There's a man who had two debtors. One owed him 50 days wages, the other 500 days wages, and he forgave both. Both men he forgave of their debt. Now let me ask you something, Simon. 
which of those men do you think loved the creditor more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one he forgave the biggest debt. And what Jesus is saying to him is the difference between you two, you the religious and she the irreligious, is not behavior, it's not law-keeping, it's gratitude. You see, Simon, she knows what her debt is, and you don't. Forty-five years ago, I'm in Tidewater, Virginia, sitting in a church, and my pastor at the time, a man who loved the Lord, a Bible teacher, a Bible school graduate, taught on this text. And I'll never forget what he did. He did what normally uh, is done if you're a good preacher, and that's give the context. And so he told us that, you know, Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica. Paul is teaching in the synagogue. Many are believing, but some are taking offense. These ones that are taking offense begin to seize the day, and they plot to kill Paul, at least, maybe Paul and Silas both, and so what do the believers of that city do? They take Paul and Silas and they, they rush him out of the city at night, and they take him 50 miles away to a city named Berea, and when they get to Berea, the same thing happens. Paul goes in the synagogue, teaches, many believe, not only Jewish men, but also Jewish women, and some Gentile men and women and some servants, and some free men. And these guys from Thessalonica that wanted to kill Paul, they come down to Berea and they stir up trouble. And so this time, Paul is taken, and he's taken 200 miles away to a city called Athens. And while Paul is waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy to meet up with him, he does what he always does. He proclaims the gospel. He goes into the synagogue and proclaims it. He goes into the marketplace and proclaims it. And then my pastor said this, few believed in Athens. Why? And he answered his question. He said in Thessalonica and in Philippi and in Berea, Paul relied on the power of the Holy Spirit as he preached. But in Athens, he relies on his reason. And that's why few are saved. And you know the reason my pastor said it? <clears throat> because he wasn't using his reason. <laughs> when Paul is in Athens, he does no differently than when he is in any of the other cities. And what the Luke is showing us here in this text is that when you walk with Jesus, the Holy Spirit will command all of you. <clears throat> your emotions, your intellect, your will. The Holy Spirit is just as present in Paul's life and active as he, in Berea as he was in Athens. In fact, what Luke is giving us here is another picture of what it means to walk with Jesus. When the Holy Spirit is getting His way with us, we will begin to walk in much the same way Paul does in Athens. 
So let's dig in. First of all, notice his reason. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned with them in the synagogue, with the Jews, and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now at the time of Paul, there was no place that was more culturally significant than Athens. 150 years earlier, all the political power that Athens once had shifted to Rome. But in terms of culture and philosophy and religion, Athens was it. It was the center of the world, and Paul knows it. So what does he do? He doesn't just teach in the synagogue. He goes into the marketplace. Now, that marketplace is a lot different than the Strip District in Pittsburgh, and it's different than the Italian market in Philadelphia. It's different than the Garment District in New York. The word here is agora. My daughter works for a company in Baltimore with that name, Agora. It doesn't stand for any, it's not an acronym. What it stands for, what an Agora is, is a place of meeting. And in antiquity, it was the place where the theater was, or if you're from Dalton, Georgia, the theater. It it was the place of the cultural center. It was the place where the courts were. It was the place where the Areopagus was. It was the place where all people would gather to listen to new ideas and to reason together. So why does Paul go there? Because he knows that Jesus Christ is just as much a Lord of the Agora as He is the synagogue. He knows that Jesus is Lord of all. And so think of this. Think of what this means for Paul. Think of what this means for us as we look at his life, what the Holy Spirit has done with him. In Philippi, he goes down to the river and he talks with women. And now in Athens, he goes into the marketplace, a place of great secularity, and there he reasons with them for the gospel. What a difference. This man used to be a Pharisee. He would only spend time with the men in the synagogue. You know why he goes to the Agora? Because he knows the Scriptures. And he knows of all the prophets of the Old Testament, there was one that spoke to the vastness of God's kingdom, and that was Isaiah. Remember what Isaiah says, speaking for God? Come, let us reason together. Who's us? Jew, Gentile, men and women, slave and free. Though your sin be as scarlet, It shall be white as snow. The reason Paul goes to the marketplace is because he knows there is no part of your life that Jesus does not claim his sovereignty over. Second, notice their reaction, or his reaction. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. The word there, provoked, is not a good translation. And you know something, the NIV doesn't help you either. It says, uh, greatly distressed. When Paul is in the Agora and he looks around, he sees this city full of idols, he is greatly distressed or provoked. Neither one of those are good translations. You know what the word in Greek is translated into in English? Seized. It's like having a seizure. He's looking around, seeing all these idols, he's deeply moved. His gut's wrenched. The closest illustration in the New Testament to this is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Remember what John tells us in chapter 11? When Jesus is there, he sees Mary weeping. 
He sees the Jews all around him weeping. And John said he groaned in his spirit and was deeply troubled. Meaning what? His gut is wrenched. It's the same for Paul. When he sees a city full of idols, he's not angry, he's not indignant, he's not the old Paul, the old Pharisee who's willing to call down fire from heaven. No, his gut is seized. His heart is wrenched. Think of the difference. This was a man who sanctioned the death of people that he believed were idolaters because they were worshiping Jesus. And now, 15 years later, this is a man who sees these idols and his gut is torn open. I've told this story before, but it's a good one. Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning tells of an old Hasidic Jew living in the Ukraine who said that I learned from a peasant all what it means to love. One day there were two men sitting at a bar and both were drunk. I mean, drunk as skunks. And they were leaning on each other and they were telling each other how much they loved one another. And finally, one of the men, Ivan, turned to Peter and said, Peter, tell me what hurts me. And Peter said, I don't know what hurts you. How can I possibly know what hurts you? And Ivan's answer is swift and pointed. If you don't know what hurts me, how can you say you love me? See the difference in Paul? He's standing in this marketplace seeing this array of idols and he is cut to the quick. He's in abject pain. He's not angry. He's grieved for them. He loves them. You know why? Because they're wise and they're sophisticated and they're totally imprisoned by their idols just like he was. Third, notice his rationale. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now some would say, Paul's the master of the obvious. I perceive that you are very religious. There were 10,000 residents of that city at that time. And 30,000 idols. Three idols for every person. And some say, you know, Paul, I mean, is anything more obvious? I perceive that you're very religious. I can't believe it's been 22 years ago since that woman, Stella Liebeck, got $3 million from McDonald's for spilling coffee on her leg. Remember that? She burned her leg with coffee because she's a klutz. And, and, I mean, I don't know her, but I think she was klutzy. She gets $3 million and McDonald's gets all new cups with signs that say caution or warning. Coffee is hot. Like, duh. I read this week that there are actually little advertisements on frozen dinners that say defrost before eating. Or how about this? On a pack of peanuts it says may contain traces of peanuts (laughs) or how about this one there is actually a sign on a chainsaw that says don't stop chain with hand so when Paul says I perceive that in every way you're very religious it's sort of like really 30,000 idols 
But he's not saying that I see that you're very religious. The word he uses there is the word from which we get the word therapy. Therieo. It means to think deeply. It means to analyze. You know what Paul is saying here? As I've looked at you and these idols, I began to ask the question, why? What's underneath it? And what I've discovered is underneath every one of your decisions, underneath every one of your attachments, underneath every one of your life choices, there are things that you worship. Not long ago, I talked with a man who hasn't been here for six months. He said, you know, I haven't been here for six months. I said, really? I didn't know it was that long. He said, why? He said, because over those months, nobody would reach out to me. I've been totally ignored. Instead of reaching out to others, instead of coming and saying, hey, how are you doing? He goes into a shell. Why? Because his whole sense of identity is based on what other people feel about him. He's addicted to the approval of others. So are you. So am I. An idol is anything that we draw our identity from. Anything that gives us a sense of worth. It may be a child. It may be a relationship. It may be a mask that you wear. It may be your fear of being destitute. But what the Holy Spirit is doing in Paul's life at that moment is what the Holy Spirit always does. The Holy Spirit always points out our idols and He puts our, His finger on it. Remember the woman at the well? What was her idol? She didn't want to be alone. So she had five husbands and the guy she was living with at that time was not her husband. The rich young ruler, what was his idol? Being in control. How about Zacchaeus? A need for acceptance. How about Pilate? The fear of losing power. Idols are everywhere. And so look what Paul is saying. I've thought deeply about this. I understand in every way you're religious and so was I. You are worshiping something that will never satisfy you because there's only one God who has made you, and He's made you with an insatiable need for Himself. You know the best question to ask yourself if you're trying to analyze yourself with respect to idols? What happens if I lose that thing? What happens if it goes away? See, Paul knows what it's like to lose your idol. He knows it hurts. He knows it wipes you out. He knows it produces in you a terrible, gaping hole. But he also knows that's the place where Jesus comes and lives. See, Paul not only feels, he points it out. And then fourth, notice the repentance. Look at verses 30 and 31. In the times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that judge, from the dead. 
Did you hear about the guy that went down to the Humane Society and bought a parrot? He, as soon as he got him in the car, this parrot's cussing a blue streak. Can't believe it. So he gets home, and for a whole week, he tries to change his, his vocabulary, and he, he doesn't succeed. And one morning, he comes down, he's fixing his coffee, and this parrot lets loose with a barrage of profanity that is unbelievable. And the guy doesn't know what to do, so he opens the freezer and sticks the parrot in and closes the door. For about 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds, the parrot's cussing like crazy and goes silent. When he opens the door, the parrot looks at him and says, I believe that I've greatly offended you with my rude language. Please forgive me. And before the, par- the guy could say anything to the parrot, he said, but the parrot says, I got one question. What did that turkey say? <laughs> <clears throat> Listen to what Oswald Chambers says. It isn't repentance that saves me. Repentance is a sign that I realize what God has done for me already in Christ. The danger is to put all the emphasis on the effect rather than the cause. Is it my obedience that makes me right with God? No, never. I'm put right with God because of the obedience of another, Jesus Christ, that's granted to me. When I turn to God and submit to what He has already done, when I turn to Him and realize what Jesus has done for me, instantly the stupendous atonement of Jesus Christ rushes in and establishes me in a right relationship with God. That's exactly what Paul is saying to these Athenians. Look what he says. There's only one God. There's only one God who became a man, and He lived and He died for you. It's the only objective reality that stands the test of time. Money, if that's your idol, it'll disappear. Power, if that's your idol, it will disappear. Privilege and fame, they will evaporate. Human love, that will leave you. Approval, you'll never get enough. They're all subjective, but what Paul is saying is every idol is gone, or is here today, gone tomorrow, but not Jesus. You know, before Jesus, we could say, my idol's just as good as your idol. I could look at my neighbor and say, you know something, man, I see that really, that, that's, that speck in your eye, that's terrible. But with Jesus, there are no excuses. No other religion says God became a man. No other religion said God came, lived, died for you. Think of Paul, wise, sophisticated, religious, living a life full of idols, and then God comes in and bam, changes everything. What Paul is saying to these Athenians, he's saying to us. And everyone who walks with Jesus long enough would say the same thing. He's the only one that can meet your need. Because He's the only one that made you with that need. He's the only one that can fix our identity in the place it needs to be fixed, and that's in Him. And that identity never wavers or fails. In a world of idols, where we seek to judge ourselves and others by our own doings, Jesus comes and says, I will base my judgment on you on my own doings. 
And when you, that gets settled into your mind and down into your heart, you know what happens? All your idols begin to fall away. Because Jesus begins to fix us on the only one that matters, and that's Him. And you know something? That is a truth that even a farmer can understand. <laughs> or an Oxford student. Or any of us here today. Walking with Jesus? Choosing your reason. Seeing the idol under the sin. Laying yourself bare. Seeing Jesus for all that He is. And then you begin to understand what Luther means when he says all of life is repentance. It's not about me. It's all about Him. Think about that. Amen.